Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For the very first time, the U.S. Supreme Court will decide, can Donald Trump be prosecuted for the things he did as president? The lead starts right now. It's an extraordinary move. Special Counsel Jack Smith taking his case against Donald Trump straight to the highest court in the land. His question, does Mr. Trump get immunity or not for alleged crimes he committed while president of the United States? Plus, time is running out as this humanitarian catastrophe worsens. Critical aid into Gaza delayed at one crossing, completely cut off at another. What is being done by President Biden and others to alleviate the suffering and where is Alexei Navalny the opposition leader in Russia described as Vladimir Putin's political enemy number one seems to have just vanished from a prison in Russia welcome to the lead I'm Jake Tapper and we start today with our law and justice lead and a major development on whether Donald Trump or any present president really has to face accountability for alleged federal crimes committed while in office. It's a basic test of our democracy at the highest level. Are we, in fact, a nation of laws? This afternoon, Special Counsel Jack Smith filed a brief urging the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on whether the former president is immune from federal prosecution for his actions while he was in the White House. Smith is trying to keep the election subversion trial scheduled for next March on track, and he's hoping to avoid the delays that are coming as Trump's team fights this issue of immunity through lower courts. Trump's lawyers are claiming his actions around the 2020 election results were part of his official presidential duties at the time. It's an assessment with which the special counsel's team clearly disagrees. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, this question of immunity is already sitting with a lower court, so why is special counsel Jack Smith going straight to the Supremes? It's all about timing. This is an aggressive move to get the election subversion trial before a jury before the November 2024 election. Here they are asking the Supreme Court to resolve two questions. One, does Trump have immunity from criminal prosecution or is he protected by double jeopardy because he was impeached but not convicted for similar crimes? Now the special counsel doesn't think either one of these apply, but they want this issue resolved because we know Trump's strategy here is to delay, delay, delay. He is litigating these legitimate constitutional questions, but Jake, that takes time. It can take months, even well over a year, to work these questions through the entire appellate process and get them to the Supreme Court, which is why the special counsel is saying, look, it's in the public interest for you guys to just skip the middleman here. Let's go over the Court of Appeals. You just take up these questions and give us an answer so we can go to trial as scheduled. And they're actually citing precedent from the Nixon Watergate investigation, and the Supreme Court was able to resolve a couple issues there pretty quickly. Now, look, it's unclear what they're going to do here. Uh, clearly, this is all about timing. But interestingly, the, Supreme, the, the special counsel even gave the Supreme Court a, a middle ground, a compromise. They said, look, even if you don't want to take up these questions, could you at least tell the Court of Appeals to do this expeditiously and then try to decide these questions before the end of the term? Would this, this is just for the federal election subversion case. There are other cases, obviously, the Georgia case, 
the federal uh, classified documents case, the New York case, yeah. the New York civil case. Would this have an impact on any of the other criminal cases Donald Trump's involved in? It's unlikely because the specific question here is about federal prosecution. Now, we know Trump's lawyers down in Georgia are thinking about launching a similar challenge uh, about state prosecutions. Most people, if they lost to the Supreme Court on this question, would not relitigate this issue in other contexts, right? Because you'd have a Supreme Court precedent. But this isn't necessarily about constitutional issues. Primarily, this is about delay. So I would expect no matter what happens here, I would expect the Trump team would continue to launch any similar, uh, similar challenges wherever they can, really just to delay and try to push everything they can back after the election. Which is what lawyers do. Yeah, they could pay for it. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and former White House communications director under Donald Trump, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Ellie, um, do you think this was a smart move by the special counsel to try to speed up a decision uh, right now? I do think it's a smart move, Jake. I think it's a necessary move, in fact, because this is, as a practical matter, the only real way Jack Smith can hold on to his current trial date, which is March 4th, 2024. And here's why. Here's where we are. Jack Smith has won this case in the district court. Now, ordinarily, Donald Trump would get to appeal first to the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. That would take weeks, maybe a couple of months. If Donald Trump lost there, he could then ask the Court of Appeals to rehear the case, what we call on bank, meaning the entire Court of Appeals, pack on another several weeks, maybe months, and only then would the Supreme Court even begin its review. So there's really just no way to get all that done between now and March 4th, which isn't that far away. And so he's looking to skip the middleman, to take it right to the Supreme Court. I think it's his only chance of keeping this case on track. Alyssa, Donald Trump's team has been trying to delay this case at every turn. How do you think he he's going to react to this development? Well, this is bad news for Donald Trump. Listen, Jack Smith essentially called his bluff. Um, what, what he has the benefit of, because Donald Trump does have all these dueling investigations, is a sense of the tactics that they're going to use. And the number one tactic they've been use, using is delay. Um, so I think that this keeps it, it helps to keep things on course. And Jack Smith, by the way, intentionally did not mention the election. This was simply about there's a vital public interest in moving forward, because I've noticed some of Donald Trump's defenders have said this is election interference. Jack Smith wants to make sure this happens ahead of the election so he's convicted. He very much kept it simple that there's a vital public interest here and he wants to keep it on the scheduled timeline. Ellie, this, I mean, it's hard to imagine this not ending up at the U.S. Supreme Court anyway, at least being appealed to the Supreme Court, which is not to say they wouldn't just uh, not take it up and just de defer to the appeals court. But how do you think the U.S. Supreme Court will rule on this? Is there a chance they're just going to say, no, you have to go keep going through the normal process until it gets to us, it gets to us organically? Well, Jake, I suspect that the U.S. Supreme Court will take this case directly. Now, this is an unusual procedure, but it does happen sometimes. And if we look at recent examples, it's actually happened a couple times just in the last year or so. For example, the Supreme Court took a direct appeal. They let him skip the middle on Joe Biden's student loan plan. They also did the same thing on a dispute about an immigration policy in Texas. They also did the same thing on the dispute about the Texas law that allowed private citizens to sue over abortions. So the question the Supreme Court's going to be asking is, A, how important is this case and be how time sensitive is it? And I think if we compare this case to those three recent precedents, it's as important or more important and as time sensitive or more time sensitive. So I do think the Supreme Court's going to take the case on the expedited basis. How will they ultimately rule? That is really an unknown. We don't have anything that's directly on point. Of course, this is a six to three conservative Supreme Court. However, they've ruled against Donald Trump on some major rulings in the past. So that one we'll have to wait and see. Alyssa, uh, Chris Christie at the last debate said something about how 
in November 2024, Donald Trump will not even be allowed to vote because he'll be a convicted felon. He got booed for it. But do you think if Donald Trump is a convicted felon, there's a lot of ifs built into that question. Do you think that will necessarily make it tougher for him to win the election? I mean, it will affect him in a general election. I don't think it really moves the needle with the base. There's been some polling that has suggested some Republican support would peel off if he was convicted. But purely based on the political calendar, the likelihood that he would be a convicted felon and not in the midst of an appeals process at the time of the convention is extremely low. I think that we've seen time and time again the Republican Party is going to stick by Donald Trump, win or lose. But in a general election, I think that that would be absolutely radioactive and hand the presidency to Joe Biden. And Ellie, um, Paula said that she doesn't think that a ruling on this case would necessarily impact any of the other criminal cases Trump is facing. Uh, do you agree? So I agree with Paula 99% of the time. I slightly disagree on this one. If Donald Trump is to win here, obviously Jack Smith's federal election interference case is out the window. I also think Fonnie Willis's case is doomed. Yes, that is a state level case, but the principles of immunity would apply whether it's a federal or state level prosecution. Again, that's if Trump wins. I do agree with Paula. This will have no impact on the hush money case because that conduct almost entirely happened before Trump was president and it definitely will not impact the federal Mar-a-Lago classified documents case because that conduct was entirely after Donald Trump was president. But if he wins here, I think two of the four cases are going to be out the window. Alyssa, uh, Mr. Trump was supposed to testify in his New York trial today. He announced last night that he was not going to. Do you think his team has decided to switch its focus elsewhere, given that he's already partially lost that case? It doesn't look like it's going to end up with a, a good result for him. To be honest, I was bullish, and I said last week on CNN, I didn't think he actually would testify. I think it was him, you know, being just kind of bloviating and saying that he would show up trying to appear tough. And then I think, as often happens, his lawyers around him uh, said that this is not a good idea. He could end up hurting himself anyway. And, of course, there was already the summary judgment in this case. So there's a sense of where this is going. But I think it was most likely that people around him said it will do you more harm than good. Ellie, how do you think Judge Engeron is ultimately going to rule in, in that New York case? Well, he's already tipped his hand because he already ruled against Trump on one of the seven causes of action before the trial started. I think he's going to find against Trump on many or all of the remaining counts. He's shown no interest, no buying into Donald Trump's defenses. And then the big question is, what's the penalty? How much money? How much of the $250 million that the attorney general is seeking? And most importantly, will the judge revoke Donald Trump's business certificates? I think that this judge is going to drop the hammer on Donald Trump and then he will get to appeal. Right. But we should remind everybody there's no uh, criminal uh, jail right. penalty, prison penalty uh, with that case. Uh, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Ellie Honig, thanks to both of you. Despite all of Donald Trump's uh, legal baggage, he dominates the 2024 Republican presidential primary race. More proof of that came in today in two new CNN polls in battlegrounds, Georgia and Michigan. Why his lead in these two states matters so much. And we're back with our 2024 lead. Cue the music, please. Nice. CNN's election music. You can jam to it. With exactly five weeks until the first of the nation Iowa caucuses, a new poll out shows Donald Trump strengthening his already huge lead amongst his competitors in that state. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, this comes as we get a new look at how Trump could fare in other crucial states. Donald Trump holding a commanding and widening lead in Iowa just five weeks before the state opens the 2024 Republican presidential contest. Thank you, everybody. 51% of Republicans now backing the former president, according to a new Des Moines Register poll. 
up from 43% in October. The shrinking GOP field has boosted Trump, who now holds a 32-point lead. The race for second place is a showdown, with Ron DeSantis at 19%, followed by Nikki Haley at 16%. He's his own worst enemy by not being able to control his mouth. And that has consequences for governance and us being able to get things done. On a weekend Iowa campaign swing, DeSantis and Haley sharpening their attacks on Trump's record. We know that the economy was good under Donald Trump, right? But what we need to also remember was we went $9 trillion in debt during that same time. And we are paying the price for that. Nearly half of likely Iowa caucus goers say their minds are made up. But among Trump supporters, 70% say they are firmly committed in their decision. The first guy that ever got indicted whose poll numbers went up. The former president is increasingly turning his focus to President Joe Biden, as new CNN polls show fresh signs of warning for the White House. In Michigan and Georgia, two of the five states Biden turned from red to blue, the president is facing alarmingly low approval ratings. Our poll showing fewer than four in ten approve of his performance in office. I will save democracy. The threat is crooked Joe Biden. That's the threat. In Michigan, Trump leads Biden 50 to 40 percent in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup, with 10 percent saying they wouldn't support either candidate. That raises the question of a threat from a third-party contender. Asked specifically about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in Cornell West in Michigan, Trump falls to 39 percent and Biden to 31 percent. And in Georgia, Trump has a 49 to 44 percent edge over Biden, the poll found, with 7 percent saying they would not back either. The challenges for Biden are coming into sharper view. Trump just talks the talk. We walk the walk. Frankly, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Now, one of the biggest challenges for the president is the economy. A majority of voters in both Michigan and Georgia say Biden's policies have contributed to a worsening personal economic view for them. But, Jake, we'll get to that in a moment. Five weeks from tonight, of course, the Iowa caucuses open this Republican contest. Now, Trump has a commanding lead, but he's not taking it for granted. He's going back to Iowa on Wednesday. He's been campaigning in an entirely different way. He's actually running a campaign this time. One interesting number from the Iowa uh, poll today was that first-time caucus goers who the Trump campaign is going after, 63% of them support Trump. So you'll remember eight years ago, yeah. very loosely structured campaign. This year, it's the best campaign out there. It's one of the reasons that he has a commanding lead. But the race for second place with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley is still very, very, very aggressive. Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucus in 2016. Sure. Yes, and Donald Trump accused him of all sorts of malfeasance that was not true. A precursor to things to come. Indeed. Jeff Zellamy, thanks so much. Yeah. Tomorrow kicks off two big events in the 2024 race. Two CNN Republican presidential town halls in Iowa. I'm going to moderate the first tomorrow between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Iowa caucus participants. Then Wednesday, Abby Phillip. We'll get a chance to do the same with Vivek Ramaswamy. Both events start at 9 p.m. Eastern, right here and only here on CNN. Today, the government of Israel is out with what it calls an urgent appeal to civilians as forces target more members of Hamas in Gaza. We're going to show you the overwhelmingly catastrophic situation on the ground in Gaza next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're back with our world lead in the utterly unlivable conditions inside Gaza. Now, look. Whatever your opinion on the reasons for the current conditions of the Palestinian people, whether you blame Hamas entirely for provoking Israel with that horrific October 7th terrorist attack and then for embedding within the civilian population, or whether you lay all of it at the feet of the Israeli military and Benjamin Netanyahu, or a combination of both. Regardless, the fact remains a humanitarian catastrophe is worsening for nearly two million human beings, and it needs to be fixed immediately. In just the last hour, Israel dug in and said it would block aid from crossing through additional passageways into Gaza, despite pressure from the Biden administration and a worsening bottleneck. At the Rafah crossing in Egypt, to Egypt, um, 61 trucks were able to trickle in today. Before the war, closer to 450 crossed every day, according to the UN. And despite hopes that the Karim Shalom crossing, which is just east of Rafah, just hope, despite hopes that that would open today, no aid entered there today. A top Israeli official says that crossing and one other will be used to screen the truckloads of vital life-saving aid, but it will still have to ultimately pass through the busy Rafah crossing. Sources tell me that President Biden has been pushing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hard to open up that second passageway. In addition, sources tell me that President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Special Envoy for Middle East Humanitarian Issues David Satterfield, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Jack Lew, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan have been insisting on defined predictable pauses in the violence, in defined predictable areas, so Palestinians can move, innocent Palestinians can move out of harm's way, and aid groups can know where and when to deliver aid. All the efforts to limit the mounting Palestinian civilian casualties. But is Netanyahu listening? That remains unclear, sources say. What is clear? Gaza's dead are piling up. The Hamas-controlled health ministry says more than 18,000 people have been killed in Israeli attacks since the start of the war. Now, Israel disputes that number, and the IDF claims that it has killed around 7,000 Hamas fighters. But regardless of whose numbers you believe, no one disputes that thousands of innocent Palestinians have been killed, thousands more have been wounded, and hundreds of thousands are struggling to find food, water, and fuel, all while Gaza is teetering on the brink of collapse. We're going to take you to the Rafah crossing next, but first CNN's Alex Marquardt brings up us the gripping accounts of the unimaginable suffering inside Gaza. Israel says after two months of fighting, it is still battling Hamas in two different strongholds in northern Gaza, where militants have held out. But Israel claims they are now on the verge of being dismantled. One area is the Jabalia refugee camp, where residents said dozens of civilians were killed over the weekend. 
Since the fragile week-long pause in the fighting ended, Israel has pounded the Gaza Strip and focused on the south in Khan Yunis, the second largest city there, where Israel believes senior Hamas leaders may be hiding. As Israel expands its operations, the number of civilians killed and wounded grows. The entire house fell on my head and I was pulled from underneath the rubble, this woman said. We would have been better off dead with my children rather than living in this grim reality. An urgent appeal was issued by the IDF this weekend for even more civilians to evacuate parts of Han Yunus. But it's unclear how many would have heard the orders. And it isn't a guarantee of safety or shelter, medicine, food and water, which are all in short supply. We were displaced from the north to the south for safety, but there is no safety in the south, this woman said. It has led to deteriorating, chaotic scenes. The United Nations Secretary General warning that public order will completely break down soon. The situation is very challenging, but I think that the state of Israel does uh, much beyond our obligations by the international humanitarian law. You call the situation in southern Gaza challenging. Last month, you denied that there was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Do you acknowledge now that there really is a dire humanitarian crisis? What I'm saying is, like I've said, the situation is very, very challenging. But it's not a crisis in your opinion? As I see it, it's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. When the United Nations Security Council held an emergency session on Friday to vote on a ceasefire resolution, the United States was the only country to vote against it vetoing the resolution. The U.N. vote coming the same day that the Biden administration used an emergency maneuver to bypass Congress and approve the sale of 14,000 more tank rounds for Israel. Today in Jerusalem, Palestinian areas protested the war with a general strike, also seen in the West Bank, Lebanon and Jordan. On a normal afternoon, these small streets in East Jerusalem would be teeming with people who live here, tourists, shopkeepers selling all kinds of things. But today, there are very few people out. Shops are all closed and it's eerily quiet. Business and life really coming to a standstill in solidarity with Gaza. Israel has created an amount of hatred that will haunt this, this, this region, that will define generations for come. And therefore, it's hurting its own people as much as it is hurting everybody else in the region. This is a war that cannot be won. So, Jake, Israel has just announced that this Karam Shalom crossing will be opening tomorrow. That is a crossing between Israel and Gaza. But, as you pointed out, that does not mean that aid will be going into Gaza from Israel. Instead, those trucks will have to come into Israel from Egypt, be checked by Israel, and then go back into Egypt and drive up to, to the Rafah crossing with Gaza uh, and then head on into the, into the Gaza Strip. So this adds yet another layer to this already complicated process. The good news is that this could double the number of trucks allowed into Gaza, but as we pointed out, there are still major problems once those trucks get into Gaza that that aid gets to where it needs to be because of the fighting and the sheer number of people in the southern point of the Gaza Strip, Jake. Right. CNN's Alex Marquardt in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Thanks so much. Let's go down to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, in Arish, Egypt, close to the Rafah crossing. Clarissa, tell us what you saw when you were at the Rafah crossing earlier today. Are, how concerned are aid organizations about this bottleneck getting worse um, with Israel's refusal to let aid through that Karim Shalom crossing? 
They're desperately concerned, Jake. What they're basically saying is that the Rafa border crossing is not able to function as it should be, that it was never intended to handle this volume of trucks, hundreds of trucks. And by the way, we saw them today. Uh, they go back miles from the Rafa border crossing, all of them waiting with desperately needed aid that is still just not able to get in in the quantities that is so desperately needed. Now, we saw a, a delegation of various UN ambassadors, Security Council ambassadors. They were there not in an official UN delegation, but sort of on behalf of their own countries. They were invited by the UAE ambassador to the UN to visit the Rafa border crossing. She said, the ambassador, because she wanted to take the conversations away from the corridors of diplomacy in New York and give people a very real sense of what is happening on the ground. They visited a hospital. They listened to briefings by uh, the head of the UN agency that works in Gaza, Philippe Lazzarini, who told them there is about to be a massive humanitarian catastrophe, who talked about the breakdown of civil disorder, who talked about 100,000 Gazans now massing near that border crossing, sleeping rough in a state of just absolute desperation and despair. Take a listen to what the UAE ambassador to the UN, Lana Nasebi, had to say. We also heard and we had the opportunity to hear from a number of UN briefers who have essentially said the system is broken, more trucks is not even going to be a plaster on the wound of that. What needs to happen is a radical change and shift in what is going on in Gaza. And that is the humanitarian ceasefire that the UAE called for in its resolution last week that was vetoed. Uh, I think we're going to continue calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. I think that's the, the main message from the briefers. Do you feel frustration at all at your U.S. colleagues that you haven't been able to pass this resolution? Look, I think the resolution and the numbers speak for itself. 13 countries voted in favor. 103 countries, uh, member states, uh, supported and co-sponsored the resolution. That's the highest number of votes for a country-specific resolution, the highest number of sponsorship. I think that's a strong message. If people are not dying in the conflict today, they are dying because of a collapsing medical system, a collapsing nutrition system, lack of food, lack of water. We heard today some people don't eat a meal for three days. That's now become normal. Hunger was never one of the issues we talked about in Gaza. Massive malnutrition today is. And so there really is a moral imperative for us to take these messages back to New York and do everything we can across the board uh, to make sure that the civilians in Gaza don't suffer as much as they are suffering today. Now, Jake, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. was obviously not part of that trip today. The U.S. saying that they already have an extensive presence on the ground and are doing a lot of work on the ground. And I should add that, you know, when I pushed Ambassador Nasebi on that question of the frustration, she said point blank, and I think this is important, quote, U.S. diplomacy is the most effective tool uh, that we have for resolving this conflict. So clearly uh, the UAE and many other uh, member states really view the U.S. as an integral part of this process going on. She also said they played a key role in pressuring the Israelis to open uh, that Karem Shalom border crossing as Alex Marquardt in his previous report said it did not open today, but expectations and hopes high that it may open soon, Jake. But still, a severe crisis ongoing. Yeah, and I've also heard criticism of the Egyptians for not letting more refugees out so that they can be cared for. And the Israelis say, 
look, Hamas is the government and military of Gaza. They declared war on us. What do you expect us to do? We're not going to open those border uh, crossings um, for what it's worth. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that, too. Absolutely. I mean, what you come to realize, Jake, when you're covering this story and talking to the different parties involved is that there's a lot of finger pointing. The Israelis will blame Hamas or they'll blame the Egyptians. The Egyptians will blame the Israelis and so on and so forth. And that is what has made it, I think, so difficult for the international community to really come together in a meaningful and compelling way and meet the moment and meet the magnitude of the moment and ensure the free and unfettered passage of aid to those who need it most before this situation really crosses the Rubicon, Jake. Yeah, no, indeed. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for your reporting as always. Coming up next, Elon Musk with the dramatic reversal, letting chief right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones back on his platform, X, formerly known as Twitter. Hear what he's saying now about Jones versus what he said just about a year ago. In our tech lead today, Elon Musk has reinstated the account of right-wing extremist and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Jones was banned from Twitter back in 2018 under previous ownership after spreading false and malicious conspiracy theories, including the horrific ones about the Sandy Hook massacre, the nonsense that about the, the 20 children and, and six adults that were killed. He said it was a hoax. He said that the victims were, were crisis actors. I don't ever think the globalists that have hijacked this country wouldn't stage something like this. They kill little kids all day, every day. And it's not our government. It's the globalist. Sandy Hook, it's got inside job written all over it. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. Evil, malicious lies, every one of them. Alex Jones was later sued by the families. He was ordered to pay more than a billion dollars in damages to the victims' families after these false claims led some of Alex Jones' supporters to torment and even threaten the families in person to the point where some of these poor families had to move or they couldn't even visit the graves of their lost children. So when Elon Musk took over Twitter last year, some people began to push him, to allow Alex Jones back on the social media site, despite this cruelty. At the time, Musk seemed to respond in a very human way. Musk wrote, quote, My firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame, unquote. But... I guess that's out the window because over the weekend, Musk fielded a completely unscientific Twitter survey to his 165 million followers. He asked to reinstate Alex Jones in this platform, to which, not surprisingly, 70% of Elon Musk's followers, nearly 2 million voters, said yes. Musk later said, quote, I vehemently disagree with what he said about Sandy Hook, but are we a platform that believes in freedom of speech or are we not? That is what it comes down to in the end. And if if the people vote him back on, this will be bad for X financially, but principles matter more than money, unquote. We should also note that it was about a year ago that Mr. Free Speech there suspended some journalists for posting things he didn't like, including our friend CNN's Donny O'Sullivan. Donny, since Alex Jones' account has been restored, now it's not just up there, it's actively being promoted across the platform? 
That's right, Jake. Yeah, um, Alex Jones. It looks like he's he's actually grown his audience by about a hundred thousand followers uh, just being since put back on the platform. Uh, our colleague Claire Duffy uh, reporting that people who have opened up uh, X, the Twitter app today, um, even if they haven't followed Jones, a lot of people have been saying that in the the algorithmic feed uh, that promotes accounts, suggesting to people uh, that they should uh, follow Jones's account. That is, of course, uh, five years after he was uh, initially kicked off the platform. And really, you know, I think this is just so illustrative of what we are seeing happen with X, but also with Elon Musk, as he kind of journeys very publicly down uh, this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, Jake. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's not, he didn't just el- um, bring this, uh, the, the account back. He, he's playing a role in elevating Alex Jones' account. Last night, he hosted this uh, X live stream interview uh, with him and, and a whole bunch of other Questionable folks were were joining him. Andrew Tate, this misogynistic uh, internet personality who was indicted on human trafficking and rape charges in Romania earlier this year. And to be completely frank, Doni, Tate wasn't even the worst dude in that conversation. Why is Musk even engaging with these people? Yeah, and look, I mean, I think you showed there that tweet, uh, as you pointed out, very human tweet from Musk last year where he said, look, what... What Alex Jones said uh, that was so false and disgusting about Sandy Hook um, that he would never get back on the platform because of that. Um, you've now seen that over the past year, uh, Musk, you know, kind of going further and further and further uh, to the fringe, uh, even up to a few weeks ago, um, agreeing with a anti-Semitic uh, post, which he later tried to clarify and did a trip to Israel and, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I've spent a lot of the past few years speaking to people who have gone down rabbit holes of radicalization and conspiracy theories and speak to families of, of who have loved ones. Uh, and it is quite reminiscent of that when you see that, of course. But in this case, it is uh, one of the most powerful and one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he's promoting these people. And I will just say that that audio stream you mentioned uh, on last check, it had 11 million people, 11 million listeners. Now, of course, numbers online can be a little deceiving, but needless to say, millions of people uh, now have access to, to this junk. Yeah, it's, we should also note Jones' offenses are, they're more than just uh, the Sandy Hook campaign, which was vile enough in and of itself. But, you know, he had a lot of followers at the insurrection on January 6th who were charged with serious crimes. And one wonders, is Elon Musk trying to chase normal people off X? Is he trying to chase advertisers away even more than he already has? Yeah, I mean, I think the conventional wisdom here would say, you know, this is going to push advertisers away. It certainly is going to be very interesting what major brands uh, like, including the NFL, are going to do as as this platform continues to seemingly descend. Um, But let's not forget, there is a lot of money in bullshit as well, right? I mean, we saw through the Alex Jones uh, trial how he made a lot of money. Um, And if you really tap into this world, uh, along with Tucker Carlson and and General Michael Flynn and others, people who who are taking uh, kind of part now in this new X community, uh, that can potentially be quite lucrative. And potentially, that's the direction Musk wants to go. A lot of money and a lot of votes. Tony O'Sullivan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, one of Russia's most high-profile political prisoners now missing. What happened to opposition leader Alexei Navalny? Could his disappearance be connected to Russia's upcoming presidential election? Stay with us. In our world lead, jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is reportedly missing. 
from prison. Navalny's legal team says he was supposed to show up for a court hearing today near Moscow. Remember, Navalny is considered to be one of the most serious political threats to Russian President Vladimir Putin, even while he's behind bars. CNN's Fred Pleiken is in Berlin, Germany for us. Fred, Navalny's lawyers say he's been gone for six days and they don't know where he is? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And they say that all this has been building up. We were supposed to visit him in prison on Friday. And back then, um, the prison authorities said, look, you just simply can't see him. And then today, as you mentioned, he was supposed to have this hearing that was supposed to take place via video link from that jail that he's been in so far. And he just simply didn't show up for that. Now, the lawyers were then told, and this really says a lot about the Russian prison service, uh, the lawyers were then told that apparently there was a power failure, but then the lawyers kept asking, and the prison authorities then admitted that he was actually no longer even on the list of prisoners who were inside that jail. So what happened then is that uh, Alexei Navalny's associates and his lawyers as well made a lot of phone calls to a lot of jails in the vicinity of that area, and none of them knew anything about Alexei Navalny being there. So as of this point right now, he is and remains missing. This obviously, Jake, um, leads to a lot of concerns uh, among his family, among also his associates as well, because one of the things that we do know is that over the past couple of weeks, he has had some serious health issues. In fact, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, of which he is still uh, the head, said that um, just a week ago, he actually fainted inside his jail cell and had to be given an IV because he's been so weak recently, Jake. As the mystery around Navalny's whereabouts intensifies, intensifies one has to wonder um, whether this is directly connected to the upcoming presidential election in Russia in March. Yeah, you know, that is, that is quite interesting because Vladimir Putin, of course, just recently announced that he is going to stand in that uh, election, which is uh, sent, uh, set to take place on March 17th. And it's around this time now that Alexei Navalny has disappeared. And one of the things that we've also uh, seen is that the Anti-Corruption Foundation of Alexei Navalny, they actually managed to buy some billboard ads in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, which on the face of them say, Happy New Year to Russia. But if you click on a QR code, it, it tries to dis swayed people from voting for Vladimir Putin. So that's certainly something that definitely angered the Russian authorities. So that's one of the things that the Anti-Corruption Foundation is looking into. One of the things, however, Jake, that we do need to point out is that Alexei Navalny was apparently supposed to be transferred to a different jail with an even harsher regime than the one that he's already been in so far. And it isn't that uncommon for prisoners when they're in that process of being transferred to completely be out of communications, to not be allowed to communicate at all. In fact, that is something that happened to Navalny in 2022 when he was put into the jail that he's been in so far. Nevertheless, the concern, of course, is massive right now among those people who are supporting him because of his health issues and because they simply have absolutely no idea about his whereabouts, Jake. All right, Fred Plankin in Berlin, Germany for us. Thank you so much. A major request today from special counsel Jack Smith. He wants the U.S. Supreme Court to decide whether or not Donald Trump is immune from crimes he allegedly committed while president. Why make this ask now? What might this mean for the trial set to start in March? That's ahead. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, tracking the flow of money to Hamas. Why his critics say Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of all people, helped support the terror group by turning a blind eye to that funding so as to hurt the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Plus, the Texas woman pregnant with a fetus with a fatal condition after fighting to be able to get a, an abortion in Texas. An attorney for Kate Cox says she has left the state to get the procedure. Could that decision put her in jeopardy for criminal prosecution by the state of Texas? And leading this hour, the U.S. Supreme Court has been asked to intervene in the federal election subversion case against Donald Trump. Special Counsel Jack Smith is going around the appeals process and asking the high court directly, is Donald Trump immune from his alleged crimes during his time as president? Let's go right to CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Pettis. Evan, this trial was set to start in March. How does this U.S. Supreme Court request impact that? Well, Jake, that's exactly what the uh, the special counsel is trying to do. They're trying to make sure that this this uh, trial remains on track to get started in March because they know that eventually this case was going to come to the Supreme Court. They know that Donald Trump was going to and his lawyers were going to use the next couple of months to make filings to the uh, to the courts to try to delay this trial. That has been the game all along. And so what they're asking for is for the court to take on head on the, the question of whether Trump is immune from prosecution for things that happened while he was in office. And then secondly, whether uh, he essentially is, is, is barred from being tried in this case because of double jeopardy, because he was uh, obviously impeached by the Congress, but he was not convicted. So that is one of the central questions that Jack Smith and his team is, is now asking. I'll read you just a part of this filing, which says, in part, uh, a cornerstone of our constitutional order is that no person is above the law. The force of that principle is at its zenith here, whereas here, a grand jury has accused a former president of committing federal crimes to subvert the peaceful transfer of power to his lawfully elected uh, successor. Nothing could be more vital to our democracy than a president who abuses the electoral system to remain in office is held accountable for criminal conduct. Jake, this is obviously uh, now the, the, the goal here is to try to expedite this. They're asking for the court to do this, uh, to, to, to get the briefs going by December 18th. The goal is obviously to try to get this going before that March trial date comes near. And Evan, Special Counsel Jack Smith notes a, a similar maneuver was used uh, during the Nixon era. Tell us about that and how that case might apply. Right. Well, if if that is the precedent that they want to want to copy, then there we squarely, uh, Jake, be able to get this done before that March trial date. In that case, which they cite in this brief, uh, they point out that uh, the uh, Supreme Court rendered a, a decision within 16 days of hearing an argument and within two months of the first petition being made. And also one of the things that if you read this uh, this brief, one of the things that Jack Smith does here, Jake, is they point out that this, this court, this cur current Supreme Court has kind of had a habit of uh, expediting appeals. It, for instance, in a Texas case uh, involving uh, student loans against the, the Biden administration, it's something that the Biden administration has not been happy about, the, the, certainly some of the critics uh, of the court. So they're pointing out that this court has been very willing to expedite other appeals. And this one, of course, is of great importance. Mm. All right, Evan Pettis, thanks so much. With us now to discuss former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration, Tom Dupree. 
Tom, why would Special Counsel Jack Smith go directly to the Supreme Court instead of having it go through the normal appeals process? One reason only, Jake, he wants to keep this trial date in place. He wants to keep this on track. He knows that time is not his friend. He knows that if he doesn't somehow get an expedited decision from the appeals courts in this case, that there is a very good chance that the former president will be able to delay the trial date, possibly until after the election. This is a gamble, though, right? I mean, there's a chance that the U.S. Supreme Court, which is six to three conservative, including three justices that Trump appointed, there's a chance that that they take the case and say, yeah, Trump's immune from prosecution for things he did while he was president. Absolutely. I mean, this is a roll of the dice. And, you know, I'm sure there were some folks in Jack Smith's camp who said, let's be very, very careful of what we wish for, because we might get it. The Supreme Court might agree to take this case on an expedited basis. And to your point, they very well could rule against us, in which case it's game over pretty much for Jack Smith. I think from his perspective, though, he thinks it's worth the gamble because from his perspective, he's thinking, look, the Supreme Court is going to decide this case and this issue at some point. And it's much better from his perspective if they make their decision sooner rather than later. Jack Smith's also asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on this question of double jeopardy because Trump's lawyers are arguing that because he he was acquitted by the Senate in the impeachment trial, he cannot be criminally tried for the same actions. Again, I'm confused about that, though, because... The Senate trial, there was no there was no penalty. There's no prison, you know, at, at hand. There was no it was just impeachment's very different from a prison sentence. Yeah. And look, there, there's a, a pretty good argument just on the plain text of the Constitution that impeachment and criminal prosecution are separate things and that the founders envisioned that there could both be an impeachment proceeding and a subsequent criminal proceeding. But then again, as we say so often in the world of Donald Trump and the law, we are in uncharted territory. This is not a question the Supreme Court has had to wrestle with before. And I think you can make historic arguments on both sides. If the Supreme Court does agree to take this, they sure are going to have a lot to chew on. I want to ask you also about Hunter Biden's legal case, because today um, Hunter Biden asked the judge to throw out the three count gun felony indictment that was filed in Delaware earlier in the year. Part of his legal argument is that parts of this plea deal that fell apart over the summer, it's actually still valid and it's supposed to block the special counsel Weiss from filing gun charges. Does he have a point? What do you think about that? You know, I'm not too optimistic on Hunter Biden's chances here. Uh, His argument, as you said, is basically we had a deal and that deal is still in place, notwithstanding the fact that it seemed to blow up on the launch pad last summer. I think he's going to have a bit of an uphill battle. My sense just from reading the tea leaves, the way the federal judge in Delaware has approached this case is she thinks the deal is blown up, too. She doesn't think that the prosecution is bound to any sort of agreement and that they retain the freedom to charge him as they did. Don't fault him for making the argument. He doesn't have a lot of cards to play, and so it doesn't surprise me they're making this argument. But I guess I wouldn't count on him winning the day on this one. All right, Tom Dupree, always good to see you. Thank you, sir. Just into our law and justice lead. Guess who is in talks with federal prosecutors in hopes of striking a plea deal? Former Republican Congressman George Santos, who is facing multiple federal charges, including fraud and money laundering. Let's get to CNN's Bryn Gingrass in New York. Bryn, what are we learning about a possible plea deal for Mr. Santos? 
Yeah, Jake, 23 federal charges. Of course, you probably remember some of that includes stealing identities of his campaign donors and using that money to further enrich his personal life, whether it came to buying expensive clothes or cosmetic procedures. What we're learning is coming from court records filed today. He's expected for a status conference on those 23 charges tomorrow in the Eastern District of New York. But prosecutors signaling in those court records that they are in talks for a plea deal, asking the judge if they could have another status conference hearing scheduled. 30 days from now, writing, the parties are presently engaged in plea negotiations with the goal of resolving this matter without the need for a trial. So we'll see how that sort of shakes out. Of course, all the walls have been crumbling for George Santos, two of his former campaign staff members, his treasurer, his chief fundraiser. Those guys have both pleaded guilty to federal charges that they were facing. And then, of course, he was recently kicked out of Congress, as you also just mentioned. We also know in the paperwork that prosecutors are going to be asking um, for his trial, which was expected to begin next September, to be actually pushed up to a May or June date. So we'll keep an eye on this one. But it does appear that there is some sort of talks that are happening, which could strike a plea deal with the uh, former congressman here in New York. All right, Bryn Gingras, thanks so much. Coming up, the pregnant woman challenged the state of Texas and its strict abortion laws as she carried a fetus that has a fatal condition. Her decision today could be life-saving, but it also could add to her legal problems. Stay with us. Also in our Law and Justice lead, Rudy Giuliani's trial began in D.C. today to determine how much in damages he will need to pay two election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Giuliani has already been found liable for defaming the mother and daughter election workers after he falsely accused them of tampering with ballots in Georgia. CNN's Zachary Cohen is with us now. Zachary, what happened in court today and and how much are these two innocent, falsely maligned women seeking in damages? Yeah, Jake, they're seeking tens of millions of dollars in damages from Rudy Giuliani. And look, just a starter for, um, you know, defaming them and for their reputation. They want the jury to consider anywhere between $15.5 million and $43 million in damages. And that doesn't even account for emotional damages and also punitive damages. They want to send a message and they want the jury to send a message with this dollar amount that they just land on um, in, in this verdict. And they want to make sure that this is acted as, as a deterrent so that people in the future don't target poll workers and election workers the way that they were targeted. And you mentioned that Rudy Giuliani has already been found liable. Um, that's really important to remember. The judge has already determined that he did defame these two innocent um, poll workers in Georgia. And we just caught up with Rudy Giuliani a few minutes ago coming out of court. Take a listen to what he said after today's um, day in court. You heard one side. Stay tuned for my testimony. It'll be under oath. Like uh, Russian collusion. Like um, being accused of being... So um, Rudy Giuliani clearly thinks that he's the best person to get on the witness stand and convince this jury not to um, award tens of millions of dollars in damages. He's the only witness the defense plans to call in this case. Meanwhile, the plaintiffs have a series of witnesses, video depositions. So we'll have to see what the jury ultimately decides. He really thinks that testifying is a good idea. What is he going to say? It's a great question, Jake, and apparently we'll have to stay tuned for his testimony. But again, he's the only witness the defense in this case plans to call, so it'll be up to him. Um, You know, his fate will rest solely in his hands. Okay. Zachary Cohen, thanks so much. Big developments in our healthy today in the case of Kate Cox. You might remember her. She's the Texas woman who is suing the state of Texas in order to get an emergency abortion, only to have the attorney general there, Ken Paxson, fight her all the way to the Texas Supreme Court. We have learned that Cox has left 
Texas so that she can get an abortion elsewhere. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us from Dallas. And Ed, uh, obviously, uh, we know that she has trisomy 13, which uh, means that, that if she is forced to carry this child to term, uh, the child will, will, is expected to die like within a day or two. And this actually could result in her being sterile and it could, it could cause health problems for her. Tell us more about how she came to this decision to leave the state to get an abortion. Well, Kate Cox's lawyers have been saying for the last week that she had filed this lawsuit because she wanted to have the abortion performed here in Texas, where she's close to family, it's close to home. And that was the reason why she decided to file and not travel out of state earlier. But uh, after a weekend of being in what, in her, what her lawyers describe as legal limbo uh, and that the, t- the clock was ticking, uh, they have decided to leave the state to, to have this procedure done. Uh, we'll go back to Friday. On, on, uh, that was the day that uh, uh, Ken Paxton, the Republican attorney general here in Texas, uh, took this case to the Texas Supreme Court. And we've been waiting all weekend long and into today uh, for a ruling from the Supreme Court. That came just a day after an Austin judge granted uh, Kate uh, Cox the ability to have a legal abortion through a temporary restraining order on the state's abortion law. Her lawyers said in a statement this afternoon or today saying that her health is on the line. She's been in and out of the emergency room and she couldn't wait any longer. This is why judges and politicians should not be making health care decisions for pregnant people. They are not doctors. Over the weekend, Jake, uh, Ken Paxton filed another motion with the Texas Supreme Court saying that in their view, Kate Cox had not proven uh, that this uh, pregnancy uh, threatened her life and her future fertility uh, shouldn't be considered uh, in this particular case as a reason for why she would meet the medical exemption. So, uh, you know, the intensity of everything that has gone on for the last week, for the last, uh, this past, the last few days, her lawyer said that Kate Cox had spent all weekend in bed and that they got to today and made the decision to leave the state. Jake. Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Let's bring in my panel to discuss CNN's Kristen Holmes, Jonah Goldberg, who's editor-in-chief of the Dispatch and Democratic strategist Paul Begala. Paul, this is your beloved uh, home state of Texas. Um, What do you make of it? You know, uh, on the day the Dobbs decision came down, my fellow Texan Cecile Richards told me, this will not age well. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, like Obergefell, the gay marriage case, it aged well. The more we lived under it, the more people accepted it, the more people think it's fine for gay people to get married. She's like, every day there will be a new case. There will be a new tragedy. There will be a new woman. And uh, Ms. Cox is, is the first case in Texas. She will not be the last. This is going to continue to happen as long as judges and politicians are making decisions that women used to be able to make for themselves. Joan, on Sunday, I asked Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio um, about this case. He said he didn't know much about it, but he, did, he had said that voters don't trust his party about this. I said, is this Texas case one of it? He said, he said something really interesting. Take a listen to this. We have to accept that people do not want blanket abortion bans. They just don't. If people see Republicans not as the party that's trying to make it easier to have babies, but is just trying to take people's rights away, uh, then we're going to lose. I mean, it's an interesting point from somebody who is against a, a legal abortion. Yeah, and he's also, I mean, it's also important to remember, he's sort of now Trump's main spokesperson right. in the Senate. And uh, this is a messaging that Trump has been trying to play with as well. Look, I, 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 I am essentially a pro-lifer, and I do not understand why supposedly pro-life Republicans keep picking these kinds of hills to die on. It is the kind of thing that you're going to lose more voters than win. 
it, it, it is, it, it's, it's perfect evidence about how, the, how Dobbs is not going to age well. And, you know, Vance did a pretty good job about talking about this compared to a lot of other Republicans. But the entire party is largely the part, you know, the dog that caught the car. And they had done 50 years of work to figure out how to overturn Roe and about five minutes of thought about what a post-Roe United States looks like. And they have not figured out how to talk about Chief it. Chief Justice Roberts tried to provide a path, but it wasn't listened to. Uh, Kristen, this, this doesn't seem to be hurting uh, Republicans, at least when in a vacuum, when you look at these polls. Brand new CNN poll showing major warning signs for Biden in two key battleground states. In Michigan, uh, Donald Trump leads President Biden by five points, 49 to 44. Trump's lead in, is double in Georgia, 50 percent to Biden's 40 percent. And these new numbers come just as Trump is not only skipped another Republican debate, but also skipped his planned testimony in his New York fraud case today. Um, clearly, there is also this uh, strategy, as we've discussed before, that his team, whether or not Donald Trump is aware of this, seems to think that the less the public sees of him, the better. Well, if you look at those poll numbers, maybe they have, they're onto something. Yeah. And when you talk about the strategy for skipping the testimony versus the campaign, the testimony was different. He wanted to go up there. He wanted to defend his property, his businesses. He had essentially convinced his lawyers that that was something he was going to do. And when he was cross-examined uh, by the prosecution, he felt like he didn't get to really say his piece. Now, he was convinced in these conversations with lawyers and allies that it's actually a greater risk than reward for him to take the stand again and decide ultimately not to testify. And this really isn't the first time we've seen this. Donald Trump has often said, at least to media, that he wants to testify in various trials, only to later not actually show up and say that the lawyers convinced him otherwise. So that was the legal part of this. But when it comes to the campaign part, they do have a less robust schedule this time than we saw in 2016, far less, far less than his own Republican rivals. And he isn't on the debate stage. He's eight years older. He is eight years older, and he's not. He, he's also not on the debate stage. We know that part of this is because they think that he'll be a punching bag. They also think, why do we have to do this if our, we have such a commanding lead? And they have told me that they might pivot strategies, at least when it comes to campaign stops, not really debates. I think we're beyond that now, uh, but ramping up in certain states. But they keep seeing these poll numbers, and they don't feel that they need to be going to 99 counties in Iowa. I mean, they're right. They're clearly right. Yeah. It, Mr. Trump in the Des Moines Register poll, which is, I think, a terrific poll, uh, was 43 in the last poll. He's 51 today. 51. He is ahead in Iowa, which is only 34 days away, by 32 points. The, the, the record victory for Republican in Iowa caucuses is 13. Bob Dole, 1988. He's ahead by 32 with 34 days to go. So it's working. I mean, I don't support Mr. Trump, but, but right. they clearly did the right thing in skipping these debates. But the other thing, Jonah, is it, these are this is in a vacuum, as we discussed. It doesn't have to, first of all, it's a year away, but, but second of all, this is before who knows how much money, but uh, maybe a billion dollars is spent pointing out to voters that Donald Trump, other than Mitch McConnell, is the person who is more single-handedly responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade than anyone in the world. Um, and that will resonate with some voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Yeah, so first of all, one thought about Bob Dole having the second best record so far. Um, maybe the key is to campaign while talking about yourself in the third person. <laughs> Both Trump and Dole do that, right? Um, uh, so Jonah Goldberg has another question. Um, uh, look, uh, I think a general truism of the last couple of years, or going back to 2020, 2019 even, is that when Joe Biden dominates the news, it's good for Donald Trump. And when Donald Trump dominates news, it's good for Joe Biden. Unless you are really slavishly addicted to 
loving or hating Donald Trump, most people aren't hearing a lot from Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, Joe Biden has been front and center for a good long time. That will change if Trump gets the nomination, which looks likely right now. And uh, the torrent of negative stuff that will be thrown at Trump will and the coverage that he'll start getting will at minimum remind a lot of people about why they wanted somebody other than him the last time. So I do think the polls will even out a little bit. Quickly, is that true, though? Will he continue to try to do the, did Trump continue to try to do this basement campaign even after he gets the nomination? I think it's unclear. I, I think that he will debate. They say that they want to debate Joe Biden if he is the nominee. That's one thing that they feel very strongly about. And I really think it's going to depend on what the polls look like and what his popularity looks like. You have to keep in mind, he is going to be in multiple trials, at least one. They they believe that this uh, January 6th trial will happen. Even if it gets pushed, it, means it might not be on that day. So he, even if he is going out there and campaigning, he's not going to be able to be on the campaign trail every day. If, if that case is eight weeks, that's eight weeks he's likely going to have to sit in courtroom that means only Saturdays and Sundays off so campaigning two days a week but also as you mentioned that is exhausting and that yeah. is and this is not somebody who wants to be exhausted well he's so, 77 he's 77 so yeah. I think this is going to be difficult to navigate how that looks thanks all the next big events of the 2024 calendar are this week and they're right here on CNN tomorrow I'm going to host a Republican presidential town hall with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Then Wednesday, Abby Phillip will step into the spotlight and moderate a discussion between voters and Vivek Ramaswamy. Both start at 9 o'clock Eastern, again, only here on CNN. Coming up, Hamas and its funding, why critics say Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is to blame for the terrorist group and one source of its money. Stay with us. This just into CNN, several family members of American citizen hostages uh, kidnapped and missing in Gaza had asked to attend a Hanukkah reception tonight at the White House, but reportedly uh, never got invitations. Let's go to CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. MJ, uh, what happened here? Is it too late for the White House to rectify the situation? Uh, I don't think it's too late because the reception hasn't happened yet, but this is a Hanukkah reception that the White House is hosting tonight uh, to celebrate the fifth night of Hanukkah hosted by the president uh, and the first lady. And what one of the family members uh, of the families that uh, have their family members that are missing in Gaza still believed to have been abducted by Hamas on October 7th, uh, they told me that they had reached out to the White House uh, because several of the families were in town this week, had asked for an invitation to this event. Uh, but that they ultimately did not get invited. The White House did not uh, respond to a request for comment. Uh, look, these are family members that are desperately trying to bring attention to the fact that there are still uh, eight dual American citizens that are still missing, that are still unaccounted for. Uh, obviously, the formal negotiations to get more hostages out. We saw those break down earlier this month. So there are a lot of questions right now, and these families are very desperate for any kind of news, any kind of movement that they are seeing from the White House as well as the Israeli government on how uh, their family members are going to get out. Out, Jake. We know that uh, people at the White House watch this show. If they have any questions, uh, reach out to us and we'll involve MJ and we'll fix this problem if it can be fixed. Also in our world lead today, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Martin Indyk uh, just called for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to resign. Indyk joins a chorus of other critics furious over news of a controversial deal that Netanyahu made years ago. In 2018, he started to allow hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to flow into Gaza. That aid came in the form of cash stuffed into suitcases, which CNN and an, investigative, and an Israeli investigative network found was delivered by Qatari diplomats, despite protests raised by members of Netanyahu's own cabinet. 
and within Israel's security establishment. CNN's Nima Albagar follows the money as Netanyahu's critics blame him for the massive gamble that clearly did not pay off. Israel's mourning continues even as the clamor around Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu grows, questioning whether his policies helped prop up Hamas. In a series of interviews with key Israeli players, CNN and the Israeli investigative platform Shomrim were told how Netanyahu allowed Qatari cash donations to Hamas for years without supervision, despite concerns from within his own government. $30 million per month. Per month. Okay. $360 million. Mm. It's more than a billion shekel. Mm. That's simple mathematics. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Dollar in Gaza is like uh, $20 in U.S. For them, it was like a relief. It was like oxygen. Can you live without oxygen? No. So it's a dramatic, historic mistake. Former Israeli Prime Minister and former Defense Minister Naftali Bennett says he was among those repeatedly raising concerns to Netanyahu. When Bennett became Prime Minister in 2021, he put a stop to the suitcases of cash to Hamas, moving the transfer of financial support to Hamas from cash to a UN mechanism. I stopped the cash uh, suitcases because I believe that's a horrendous mistake to allow Hamas to have all these suitcases full of cash that goes directly to rearming themselves against Israelis. Why would we feed them cash to kill us. The cash deliveries were supposed to help, among other humanitarian needs, pay Gaza's civil servants. And pictures in 2018 showed workers lining up to receive $100 bills. Israel approved the deal in a security cabinet meeting in August 2018, during a previous Netanyahu tenure as prime minister. An Israeli official defended Netanyahu's decision, telling CNN successive Israeli government enabled money to go to Gaza, not in order to strengthen Hamas, but to prevent a humanitarian crisis. That's true, but no one else approved it in cash. Former Prime Minister Bennett says that Netanyahu underestimated Hamas. I think uh, the approach towards Hamas was one of a sort of a nuisance-type terror organization that can shoot rockets, can cause uh, a bit of uh, havoc here and there, but not much more than that. So underestimate. And uh, uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, in that sense, we, we've learned a lesson. We have to believe our enemies. This lesson has become a turning point for Israel. One even longtime Netanyahu allies like Zvika Hauser acknowledge. That was an, a strategic lesson for the Israeli society that you can talk a lot about peace. You can try to do a lot of things. You can come to the White House to the, the, and, and get some uh, Nobel Prizes. But in some point, enough is enough. And if you ask me what symbolizes October 7, October 7 mostly symbolized to the Israeli society no more take risks. Risks such as this, heeding the toll of human suffering and international calls to slow the pummeling of Gaza before Israel is satisfied Hamas has been destroyed, whatever the cost. Na'mul Barir, CNN, Tel Aviv.
And our thanks to CNN's Neil Albagra for that report. Coming up, a new powerful call to action in the face of Hamas's horrific sex crimes and rapes against uh, women and girls in Israel. The voice delivering the charge will join me next. In our world lead, quote, if people don't speak up, evil operates with impunity, unquote. These words written in a powerful new opinion piece for CNN titled, After my grandmother's ordeal in the Holocaust, I have to speak out against sexual violence by Hamas on October 7th. And the author, Alexi Ash Myers, joins us. She's an attorney and advocate for girls and women in New York. Her grandmother, Clara, barely made it out of Nazi Germany. Clara Harris was just 17 in Poland when a German officer told her he would save her family under one condition that she have sex with him. So he raped her and he had lied about saving her family. Nazis ended up brutally executing her grandparents, her mother, her father, two little sisters and brother. Clara's granddaughter, Alexi Ashmeyers, joins us now. Alexi, uh, what a horrifying story. Your grandmother often told stories of the Holocaust, you say, but it wasn't until she was on her deathbed that she revealed this awful story about her rape. Tell, tell me about her and, and what was it like to hear this? Yeah, so my grandparents talked about their stories of survival often. It um, Probably not at first, um, but by the time I was born and my cousins and I were um, always around, they started to share bits of their story. And it was stories about you know, growing up in Tarnopol, Poland, and their religion, and their family, and um, all the way through the Holocaust. Each of them had harrowing stories of survival and strength, and it really taught me that there was absolutely no choice but to speak up in the face of hate, um, and that atrocities like this can only happen when um, people don't speak up, and they happen in a vacuum of silence. And so uh, it really instilled this deep sense in me. But when my grandmother was dying, and um, I was actually only 10 at the time, um, she spent her last summer living with us, and she confided this story in my, to my mother. And uh, I know that's really young to have shared it with me, but my mother did share it with me at the time, probably not really knowing how to process it and where else to go with it. Yeah. And um, it's something that I've lived with my whole life, but I don't think I quite understood the impact of that story and of my grandparents' legacy until recently, until October 7th. Yeah, and this, this in part compelled you um, to write this op-ed, to speak out about the, the sexual violence and rapes against Israeli women and girls committed by Hamas on October 7th. Tell us about that. So I work in... Um, uh, for a nonprofit that combats gender-based violence. I lend my voice every day to survivors of gender-based violence, of sexual violence, of human trafficking. And the goal of these organizations and organizations that we work with is to give survivors a voice. And what I've seen in the last few months is that many organizations whose core value it is to stand with survivors aren't. They're demanding proof and evidence um, beyond a standard that we do, even for prosecutions in this country. They are um, erasing the experience of these women and girls that uh, were brutalized by Hamas on October 7th. And by doing that, they're compounding the trauma. They are um, empowering the perpetrators who prey on vulnerable women and girls and that nobody will believe them. It's a tactic to use by perpetrators to um, get their victims to not speak up. And sadly, these women 
can't speak up because many of them were murdered and don't even have a voice. So it's so important that people with platforms, that organizations with platforms stand up for survivors of the sexual assault on October 7th. Whether you believe in, uh, I, you know, it's not a two sides situation when you're talking about sexual violence and rape. It's just astounding to me that there's any silence when we're talking about the sexual violence um, committed. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the two-state solution or no. what's going on in Gaza or the IDF or Netanyahu. or It has nothing to do with it. It's just atrocities on October 7th exist in their own bubble. Do you think that learning about what happened to your grandmother when you were so young impacted your decision to become an advocate for these victims? It absolutely did. Um, the pathway to where I am now um, is a bit circuitous from I studied international war crimes in The Hague. Um, I was a prosecutor prosecuting sexual violence cases, and now I do advocacy. And um, my, my main focus is on um, strengthening laws for human trafficking victims. And in all of these scenarios, I was moved to stand up for people who don't have a voice. And that was something that was instilled in me from day one, from when I was, you know, I played Anne Frank in the Anne Frank exhibit in Albuquerque, New Mexico when I was seven. Mm. I, it was just a topic that was always um, present in my house. And something that I've been thinking about a lot these last two months is a phrase that my grandfather said all the time. He was also survived the concentration camps. And he would say all the time, the Nazis were evil monsters, but by far the bystanders were the worst. He mm. just felt so betrayed by those who didn't stand up for him. Um, he was a dentist. He had clients. He had friends. He had neighbors. And those people who didn't use a voice to stand up for uh, him and his community and his family just plagued him for the rest of his life. And you must be concerned about the, the hostages that are still there um, particularly the young women, uh, a lot of them in the army, uh, and a lot of them civilians in their teens, 20s, 30s. And I've heard a lot of people in Israel and even many in the Biden administration express fear that, that and we've heard uh, some of the survivors come up, come, some of the kidnapped people who were released say that they're probably being sexually abused by Hamas. It's very likely that they're still being sexually abused by Hamas. And I think it's really important when we're thinking about the hostages to picture them. Um, even saying the hostages sort of removes us a little bit. But these are young women and girls, the ones we pass on the street, at our kids' gymnastics, at school. And uh, it's happening to them. And when they're returned, they're going to have such complex trauma. And I hope that they get all of the trauma-informed care that they really deserve. And we need to demand that they come home now. Yeah, it'd be nice if people were marching in the street for that. Yeah. Alexi Ash Myers, thanks so much for your time today, for your advocacy in general. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, what war looks like now in Ukraine as its president, Volodymyr Zelensky, arrives here in Washington trying to get more help for his country. In our world lead, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrives here in Washington, D.C. this evening. His mission is to convince lawmakers to give Ukraine more aid as billions of dollars are currently held up in Congress by a disagreement over many things, primarily, it seems, U.S. border policy. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Ukraine right now with a look at how the military is doing more with less. Out of Kherson city, past the bridge the Russians invaded and left on, you reach a new phase of hope and anxiety in this war. 
down on the edge of the Dnipro River, on whose isolated right bank lone groups of Ukrainians are making rare advances into Russian-occupied land. But it's tiny tools, hand-rigged donated drones and small gains. The US is stalling on the big money Ukraine needs to make the breakthrough the West wants. And you can feel the anger at that here. It is relentless work. I think it'll be very difficult without American help, he says. Our supplies are also ending, so we need theirs. We've had days so busy, we launched 15 to 20, and I got 10 minutes rest between flights, the pilot says. I never imagined this would be my war. It's the PlayStation generation headsets directing cheap, single-use drones on a one-way flight into Russian lines. It's just saying the, the weather's cleared up, the fog was just settled over the river and the Russians are very aware of this threat and you can see them now trying to find a target. This keeps the Russians off the roads by day and helps Ukraine take ground. Now they manoeuvre towards a Russian checkpoint. Killing here, somehow remote, yet also intimate. Another prized target emerges, their Russian equivalent drone unit hiding in a red-roofed house, worth sending two drones at. The first, as it closes in, taken out by jamming. The second picks it up. At night, another unit, elsewhere near the city, takes over. Thermal imaging help them find Russians hiding in the woods across the river near Krinki, a village where Ukraine has a valuable foothold. This unit too were hunted and use a cheap device to spot the frequency used by a Russian drone passing above. This operator dons a new cloak as he launches a drone off the roof. See how it reduces his heat signature, probably invisible to the Russians above. The night in battered Kherson city is no respite for civilians. Sirens, yes, but also a series of Shahid Russian attack drones. Lights off, lights off. They close on us. The motor whine lower as it passes over our heads. What? Anti-aircraft guns pierce the blackout. There really is little life to be enjoyed here. And what's left rushes at the news, there are rare food handouts. They're fast gone. The shelling is relentless. A woman injured here the night before, her neighbor knocked off her feet. I don't drink, but yesterday I drank a bottle of wine. We all have our guardian angels. We women here are resilient. Herson, liberated last year, is still in the grip of the war. And unless they push the Russians back, a dark and bloody normal awaits. In the summer, we saw kids out here playing and it's not just the bitter winter that's forced them indoors, it's the fear of artillery strikes at any time. With a protective wall now built around the children's playground, the sense really of the city getting ready for a bit more of life underground, some of it in bomb shelters. Especially here at the maternity hospital, still open for tiny miracles and readying this basement to be their new ward. Built by the Soviets for a nuclear war, 
It's now a shelter because the floors above have been hit again and again. But there are sparks of life here, even if this is the view Yevgenia had when she gave birth just seven hours earlier. It's not scary. We've got used to the shelling. I've been here since the start of the war and occupation. We'll only leave if the heating goes off. Kira, conceived in spring when an end to the war was imaginable, but born into a city lost to Russia's slow grind to nothing. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Kherson, Ukraine. And our thanks to Nick Payton Walsh for that report. This just in, the U.S. Supreme Court has responded to special counsel Jack Smith, and they say they will expedite consideration of his request for the justices to rule on Donald Trump's possible immunity in the federal election subversion case. The impact of this major request ahead. A Minnesota man is free tonight after spending 19 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Marvin Haynes was sentenced to life in prison in 2005 for killing a flower shop clerk. Today, a judge, a judge overturned his wrongful conviction after prosecutors concluded he did not get a fair trial after all. The Great North Innocence Project, representing Haynes, argued detectives used, quote, problematic police lineup procedures and, quote, faulty eyewitness accounts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer next door in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.